1: When you see somebody's number being called before he was ready, somebody who loved life so much, you say to yourself, do you know what? One of the things the nurses in the clinic said at the time, you know, Brendan Grace has taught me something about dying. You know, it taught me something about living and dying
2: Our guest this week recently described grief as the companion you never wanted, and that's something that myself, Venetia, and many of our listeners know all too well. Amanda Grace is the daughter of Brendan Grace, one of Ireland's all-time legendary figures in comedy and entertainment, whose death in July 2019 saw a special public outcry of grief and love in a way that very few people garner in their life. And it's so wonderful to have you here today to talk to us, Amanda, about your dad, and I have to say... My parents were huge fans and I think that they would be absolutely amazed that you and I were chatting today. Thank you so much for coming on to talk about your dad. It hasn't been that long since he passed. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about grief in the place that you're in right now. First of all, just tell us who he was. I mean, as his daughter, that's a very different thing than what the public might have might have known.
1: Yes. Thank you, Sasha, and it's um a pleasure to be here. So I'm just going to pick a photograph down off the board in front of me of my dad to answer that question. Who was he? Um, he was a divil, and <laughs> um he was a lot of fun. He was kind of like one of the kids at home. So my mom had five kids, wow. um, and one of them was the daddy, but um he was very mischievous, very clever, very fun. Um, very warm, really had a way of drawing people in and Mm. um, making people feel like they mattered. He was kind of, um, you know, he was very much, he was the king of the workaround. He wasn't great at, you know, like following the rules or something like that. You know, he kind of found his own way about things. And obviously he was, he was funny, you know, um, he wasn't funny at home the way he was funny on the stage, let's say.
2: Well, that's a very different, like, it's not as performative, right? I mean, it's performative in a way, but there's an intimacy in that home relationship and the comedy that takes place sort of in within your family. It's a totally different thing.
1: Very different. And it's humor, you know, and and that humor is a big feature of our family and always has been Um, as far back as I can remember his mother. Had it his sister, it was a wow. kind of like a survival humor, but it was a great yeah. humor. It really was. The ability to laugh at yourself is something that not everybody possesses. You know? mm-hmm.
2: And has that? I mean, I don't. I'm not. I don't want to skip ahead here, but has that helped you throughout your life to cope as well? Because I know for me, the the most cathartic moments, like in amidst the darkest moments, has been that memory of the inappropriate laughing. I mean, that's just the that's it's, It does something to you.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's it's a way of connecting I think with people as well, especially if it's a, you know, if it's a shared. It's a, what my dad was great at was like everybody was in on the joke, you know? He didn't do the kind of comedy that somebody took the brunt of the laugh, you know? No, nobody was ever the butt of the joke and <laughs> sometimes he was, but you know. <laughs> um so yeah, I I think it fosters connection between people to have something to laugh about, you know? Mm-hmm to not take life so seriously without being reckless, you know.
2: You're the eldest, aren't you? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a, I mean, that's a huge relationship in itself in that you're the first kid to show up on the scene in his life. Yeah. As a parent myself, I can imagine it meant more to him than anything in the whole world because you changed his whole world from the minute you arrive on the scene, yeah. Um, what was it like, kind of being the the oldest sibling in the family, and how did you and him kind of interact with each other? Um, I
1: guess, um, being the oldest, I you know there was a lot of permission to be a little bit cheeky and irreverent, and to you know to question authority, <laughs> um, and um there wasn't pressures put on me in terms of, you're the oldest now, you should be leading by example. There was none of that kind of stuff. Um, when I look back, there are things that I, you know, because I got 10 years more with my father than my youngest sibling, let's say. yeah. Um, and so I have memories such as, you know, going into the recording studio with him when I was small, on the back of his bike, with my little lunchbox packed. And I'd be sitting there uh, in the studio, not realizing, you know, that the musicians that are around, like Eamon Campbell and and it's all going on it was all very exciting and there was a lot of backstage stuff and the smell of makeup and panto uh, you know makeup and crisps that that's <laughs> like the smell of panto yeah. and um you know so i i loved to go places with him and i loved as well i always loved that i was with the star you know
0: that
1: yeah. i that he was mine you know um Now, you'd get trampled on every now and again, you know, Uh, back in the 80s, he used to get mobbed a lot Um, and you definitely I I got trampled on a a few times and separated from him a few times and that was scary. But um, he was always very proud of me and brought me places where you probably wouldn't bring children, you know, like Mm. I don't know many artists who would bring a child into a recording studio, you know.
2: Um, it's very special that he that he brought you along for it because i mean it makes your life unlike anybody else's it's it's a very um unusual and privileged amazing place to be. Did you ever resent it? Was there ever times it was hard
1: uh there was times it was embarrassing you know like in your teenage years where it's like it's it's it was embarrassing to um to always kind of have a thing that singled me out you mm-hmm. know so I get you know everyone I used to pretend my name was other surnames like my my friends that I grow up with I'd be like can we swap names and will you be the grace today um because I hated when it was um when I was identified and then there'd be a bit of like somebody would change towards you suddenly they'd be more interested in you because of that and that for a while I had to navigate that in my teenage because of course I wanted to be known by my own merit um yeah and that the professionalism well, like that has been something that I have had to navigate, but i've anybody who is quote unquote in the shadow of of a larger than life figure has to navigate that, and it really does grow you in a way that that you know like I was very very motivated to to find out well who am I by my own merit
2: mm. you know which is a, an exercise in 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 that not all people do right it's kind of that self discovery and pushing yourself a little bit further um, and and in Ireland, especially, someone being famous, it's it's quite overwhelming because it's it kind of is in every part of of life. So everyone knew who he was, and, you, and I imagine when you were going to college or going to work or going to school, or it's always you know everyone knew him. It's not like maybe in how vast America is or something like that, where you could find places in the in the world where people didn't. Everyone knew him, so yeah. that you know it must have been quite a challenge to find your own kind of space yeah. within that.
1: Yes, yeah there, yeah, there there wasn't any. <laughs>
2: yeah. Um in terms of like when he got sick and how that happened for you guys, he he was a young man. Um he was not an old man and he was someone who had probably, you know, you probably had hoped had a lot of life left. So can you talk to a little bit about what that experience was like for a lot of people? I know for me and I just, you know, I relate my own experience here only to to, you know, for our listeners to feel as though we understand what the, what they've been through is you know, it's, it's the, for me, it was the biggest possible thing that could have happened, you know, hearing the, the word cancer and, and the things that happened consequently after that. What was that like for you guys as a family to find out that he wasn't well?
1: Um, he was he was battling for a while some health issues, you know, so we had kind of gotten used to his health being fragile. And I know that the last 10 years of his life, I was holding my breath. Um, I don't think I was alone in that. Um, I was constantly waiting for a call, you know, because he had a lot of complications that he took, like, on the chin, you know, in a pinch of salt. And he's just like, he navigated them, And um, of course, with the support of my mother. But we definitely did, and I personally did, worry all the time about losing my dad to something diabetic-related um. So in the final year, there had been recurrent chest infections, let's say, is what we believed them to be. And then pneumonia, you know, it kind of was advancing to pneumonia. So there was a couple of hospital admissions and this pneumonia wasn't going away. And it was quite frightening in that it kept coming back. But nobody thought cancer. Not one of us thought cancer. And I was in the room with him the day he got the news himself, me and my mother. And um, I had driven from Sligo to Galway to be with them to get the news because I I had just arrived back from America. I had done a tour of Oregon. You know, I had done some workshops when I was over there. And um, when I came home, he had had a biopsy. And so I flew in on Friday and he was getting the results on Saturday. So I was there on the Saturday for it um and I had a bad feeling you know that kind of way but you'd always have that but he got the news on the Saturday and I remember I was sitting behind him and he was sitting on the bed in front of me with his back to me facing the doctor and when the doctor delivered the news I just seen his two hands going up over his head like that and he threw his head back and he went oh Lord Jesus kind of a thing you know and I was sitting beside a nurse a complete stranger and I just grabbed her hand and there was this moment of you know you know yourself it's just like the bell rings that can't be unrung kind of a thing and then the scrambling to cling to the words of the doctor you know cling to where's the hope is there what's he saying so the doctor was saying you know we don't know we have found a cancer is what he said from the lung tissue we don't know too much yet you know there are possibilities there are a lot of treatment options so he filled us with hope in that moment because all he knew at that stage the doctor was that there is cancer we don't know anything about the cancer um and so we all naively went into okay well this is this is good they found it and it's early and we went went through all of that and scrambling kind of a thing, you know, you, you go into that. It's almost like a shock absorbing mode yeah. where it's like, OK, let's find the hope in cancer, you know, and it's amazing how fast that can happen because, you know, on Friday, cancer would have been the worst news Yeah. on Saturday. Unoperable would have been the worst mm. news, so how it advances to that and that's not the news we got initially so we now call that the fluffy diagnosis hmm. because that was the diagnosis that was like hey look this is probably operable definitely treatable um so let's just do a few more tests and see where it goes but you know you've got good healthcare we can do this okay um and then it just kind of um you know it was another couple of days before The real news came, which was on the Tuesday. Um, But I spent from that Saturday, I drove back to Sligo um, on that night. My mother stayed in Galway with my dad. And um, I drove home that night and I started to pack bags and I started to cry. And I didn't stop crying until the Tuesday when I arrived back into the room. And I literally, you know, composed myself before walking in the door. And I had a very strange experience on the way down in the car because I literally cried my way with my, you know, white knuckling it on the steering wheel, cried my way, you know, from Galway or from Sligo to Galway, which is a good two and a half hours of a drive for me. Um, But like I was in the car crying and I think I must have been praying as well. I'm not sure, but I was doing the, oh, please God thing. And the next thing, my car just filled up with an energy and it, suddenly I felt like the car was full and that I had three passengers with me in the car. It was the weirdest thing. And it it continued. They, they I'm saying, stayed with me all the way to the hospital. And mm-hmm. so when I arrived into the room and I had a moment with my parents just before the consultant arrived in, I said to them, I said, listen, whatever news we get now, whatever happens, I said, I know that we're being held. Mm. And I told them what happened in the car. I said, we're, we're not alone in this. But I also knew because of that experience that it was what what
2: was coming. So the the spiritual experience that was happening also told you that, you know, this 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 isn't you're going to need us like you're you're going to. Yeah, yeah. I,
1: I don't know if you experienced it yourself, Sasha, but there's a quality of the heavens open when death comes to your door. What it really is, is your heart is opening. And it, you know, and and, and what made it through to me, because I have a spirituality that I do nourish and nurture and the heavens opened for me and for my family and we all felt held in, in, in those days.
2: I think it's, 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 I was the, one of the questions last night I was lying in bed and I was thinking about what I wanted to ask you, what I wanted to talk to you about. And one of the questions I, for some reason with you, and I wouldn't always necessarily feel comfortable asking, but one of the questions I really felt compelled to ask you was, how has grief changed you? And I think in some ways you're answering that because the similar to me, there's like a cracking open, there was for me anyway, where um the world was not the same as it had been prior to, you know, that moment of hearing you know it 's inoperable or the person 's not going to live, and suddenly something changes so f- so big in your head and your heart and your life. I know when I had my um when I had my daughter, my parents had both passed at that point, and i was I felt very alone when I went into the theater to have my surgery, and it was an emergency c section and they 've kind of strapped my husband was waiting in the hall, but there was something just i i I craved my family, my parents my my my, sis, my sister and I, they kind of put me down on the table and I, and for some reason, I just immediately could feel them there. Yeah. My dad at one side, my mom at the other side, my sister. And I just was, it was, and I, you know, I, I'd never experienced anything like that before. And it's not something I experience every day by any means, but it was an overwhelming thing of that they were, you know, that that there was more and that things were changing in terms yeah. of how you see the world and how you experience things. How did your dad and your mom react to you saying that? Like, was that something that they were also like accepting of and did it help comfort them?
1: Yeah, I just want to say before I answer that, I have to share this line, this beautiful line from a Paul Simon song. It's from Graceland.
2: Oh, I know the one you're (laughs) going to say. Good.
1: Yeah. Losing love is like a window in your heart. Everyone can see you're blown apart. It's not true that everyone can see that you're blown apart. Unfortunately, it's not. Um.
2: That so, that line in that song has always said so the. It actually didn't really mean that much to me until after mm. I had experienced grief, and then I yeah. agree. I agree with you completely. It yeah. it so perfectly captures it. It does um, because you are blown. There's a like. There's a like a you're blown open in that way. Yeah, you know I. I always think about the, the, the responsibility of being a person in that room. Yeah. When you're, when you're with someone who is being told that they, they're not going to live. Yeah. And that you love that person immensely. Yes. And it's a huge responsibility to sit there and to, be, to carry that weight. Did you feel, I mean, how did that, were you honored to be able to, to help him through this process?
1: Yeah. Um, I am so grateful that I was there because I very much felt... That I absorbed some of the shock, you know, just my physical presence, and the holding presence that I have, you know, it's it's what I do professionally is is you know this kind of real sharing intimate space with people, you know, so I know how to be a holder of space, you know, you have to brace yourself a little bit, you know, so I'm thinking to myself, do I say this? Do I not say this? Because you don't want to spook anybody either, you know, the way you, and this is the big thing about grief, people are like and depression and everything like like. If I speak it, I'll make the person cry. You know, I'll make it real, and i'll and then it'll be too overwhelming. so i I remember sitting because I was sitting there for a while with the question in my mind of how am I going to deliver this? But I also knew that I needed to say it before the doctor came in. I needed for this to be, and I remember sitting they were sitting on the window sill bench in the hospital room. And I was um, sitting on a chair in front of them and I said to them, I said, you know, I just said, listen, I, I, here's, here's, I don't even know how I pronounce, but I just put it out there and I said, whatever we hear now, whatever happens next, I have full faith and I know that we're being held. And um, it was just a lovely moment between the three of them. But my father was also very, and, and my mother, we've also, we've always been, without being, um, you know, kind of like with a, a very subtle spirituality in the home that is very much part of the natural fabric of our lives. So it is expressed in, you know, like m- memory, really. There's a lot of remembering people who have gone, has always been a thing that happens in our family. Um, songs, um, you know, photographs. And um, and also my dad had... Um, you know, you know, the robin, every house has a robin that comes to visit, you know, and my dad loved that robin like he he used to feed the robin because the robin represented his mother to him and and the spirit world. And he just always um, had that. And we have it now, you know, like we have been finding ways to accommodate my dad in this house since he has gone.
2: (laughs) Oh, that's such a beautiful thing to hear you say. Because the relationship with the person when they're gone, it's a very complicated thing for people, especially who have never lost someone to hear, that the relationship goes on. Um, it just goes on in a different, in lots of different ways. Yes, of course, there's days where it feels like they're gone forever and you can't connect and you wish they were still here. Of course, you would always wish that. But if you could tell me a little bit about how you guys do that, because um, I think it can be a very powerful thing when you still include them. In your world. Yeah. Okay. Well, for a start, he's
1: right here, right beside (laughs) me. So I have a little urn. Each of the siblings, we we all received a little urn and we have a big urn. So we call it um, Big Dad is upstairs and we all have little dads. Mm. And, um, you know, again, with the humor, my, my dad in the 80s had a song. He parodied a song by the Wolf Tones, My Heart is in Ireland. But he his parody was, my heart is in Ireland, my lungs are in New York, my liver's in Liverpool, my mm-hmm. brains are in Bangkok or something like that. And on the day that uh, we picked up his ashes, the undertaker came out and he was handing me the big urn and he was like, it's a bit heavy now, so just, you know, brace yourself. So I took it and I was like, and again, humour, but it was just the weirdest thing. And I said to him, my God, that was heavy." he said, yeah, and it's like really full. <laughs> uh, and we just had a good laugh about it because, you know, there was like, there was a really big urn that was really, really full. And then there was four small urns that were really, really full. And we were just like, this is dad all over, like just filling whatever space he inhabited, mm. he took it up as in life, so and death kind of a thing. And then also we thought about the song. And would you believe it came on the radio as we were leaving the, oh my the funeral home that day? Um, it oh, was, wow. yeah, it was the weirdest thing, and we all had a good laugh going home with the ashes. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: but how was how did you guys,
2: I mean, in terms of the way the public obviously were so moved and 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 miss him so much and felt the loss, did was that? hard thing for you or was it a beautiful thing to see so many people because um, you're talking you know in those days especially I can't imagine what it feels like it's it's so much pressure and it's really hard to go through that process of a wake and a funeral but when you've got the so many people around the world feeling it too how how was that
1: So my dad, when he was planning his funeral, he, you know, was saying, I'm going to go here. And what he said was, as my coffin is going into the church, I want everybody to sing Dublin in the Rare all Times. And we're kind of looking at each other going, what, what, like, do we, do you want us to start singing? Do we hire, like, how... We're asking like, oh, what's the logistics of that? How do we get that going? How do we get a sing song going at that stage? Like, And he said, oh no, he said the people would sing that. We were just like, oh, okay. And I wrote down all the notes. I still have all the notes of all his requests. And as we approached the church, that's exactly what happened. My dad knew his people. He knew his yeah. audience so well. He knew his fans so well. He loved them and they loved him. And it was like... They gave him and of course, being in the liberties Mm. where he belonged, so he was going home and they knew exactly what to do. And, you know, there's a there's a thing about speaking, you know, speak it, name it, name the thing that you want and and watch it come to you kind of a thing, you know, not always. You know, I know there's there's an awful lot to consider there, but that is what happened. He vision envisioned a funeral he, that he wasn't going to witness himself in mm. as you know, in his embodied self, but he actually envisioned the funeral he got.
0: Mm. It
1: was exactly the funeral he envisioned. And it was it was such a gift. Um, It was a gift to be um, held like that by people. Mm. It was a gift to, you know, have the area around us come to a standstill and everybody join us in our grief and witness our grief and and cry for us and pray for us, It it's something that I wish everybody could have. Mm. And we're good at it in Ireland as in bringing it to, you know, bringing the town to a standstill to to respect the funeral cortege and, and people are good with that. But in our case, it continued way beyond that weekend, let's say, in the week of the funeral, it was, you know, it was ongoing. It even got interrupted by the pandemic. There was things planned that didn't happen, but There was a documentary, there was a show, there Mm. was numerous accolades and interviews and and things that just, you know, so that that was really helpful because one of the things I think that is most um, difficult in grief is the navigating it in a world that doesn't know it happened, Mm. you know, and that that doesn't. Stop for you, and that just keeps going mm. as normal and you know there's there's nothing more heartbreaking to a grieving person than you know the world and people in it just expecting you to be as you were yeah and 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 being shitty with you for not being that way, you know
2: yeah, I mean that is I think that's the 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 most difficult surprise I think when people they expect that maybe people will still understand and be loving and caring. They're shocked to find how callous, and that's true. People can, they wish that you could move on. I want to ask you a question about something, because I want to learn more about it, and I have a feeling you know, you, you've mentioned it a couple of times, so I have feel a feeling you you um know something about this. The term holding space mm. and the idea of holding space, because of exactly what we're talking about right now, which is how people respond to grief and how people support each other. Um, supporting each other through grief, through supporting someone through grief is very difficult, especially if you've never experience grief yourself but holding space can you talk a little bit about what that means to you and how that can be useful because i think it can be extremely useful in caring for someone in your life who has been through a loss Mm -hmm.
1: yeah um so what what holding space means and do you have show notes sasha yeah okay well i'll send you an article um to to put in the show notes and it is uh, an article about It's literally how to hold space for somebody. And it is such, everybody should read this article. So Mm -hmm. the metaphor that it takes is dropping a pebble into a body of water. And the point of impact is is the point at which the person is bereaved, you know. So whoever it is that is bereaved by this is the point of impact of the pebble. And then the rippling outwards are the concentric circles of support around that person. Mm -hmm. And so whoever is first in line. Um, is is absorbing the most shock and and as it goes outwards but the flow of energy is very important to know so the flow of energy has to go outwards so if you, you you don't lean in you lean out okay right so you never lean on the bereaved person to OK, to do the, you know, to hold you, you only yeah. lean back like who's who's got my back and who's got her back. And so there's there's this idea for a start that that is the hierarchy, let's say, of support. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you only le- lean out and not in. Um, And then secondly, what what holding space means is just to allow it be in the room as it is, mm-hmm. to allow for it to look how it is, sound how it is you know, be coming up as it is and also to allow for the ugly part of it. You know, the snotty tears, the angry bit where it's not fair um, and not trying to bright side it with silver linings, you know. And if, um, you know, there are two words that I despair to hear coming out of anybody's mouth and it's, well, at least Mm -hmm. when I hear a sentence beginning with that, I shut down because I think to myself, no, not at least. I'm not going to look for the bright side here um, and go away. Mm. So that that but that is a human tendency because it's very uncomfortable to see somebody else struggling in the mess. So what holding space means is learning how to sit in the mess and the uncomfortable
2: bits. You know, I'm so glad we're talking about this because this is something that I it's like once you see it, you can't unsee it, right? So once you know about these things and mm-hmm. you are aware of them, you're so aware of your own behavior and you're aware of how you're treating other people and you're aware of the words that you're using. And for me, I'm so much more cognizant of trying to hold space for people and not trying not to fix. And so not even not even trying to repair what had happened in my own grief journey because I, you know, there's a lot of, I, I couldn't obviously, but in terms of like how I can help people going forward. Is there like when you talk about holding space, I think sometimes I get confused a little bit about the element of just sort of being quiet and listening. But also, are there kind of like um, strong, is there language that can be powerful that can say to someone, I am here and I'm not going anywhere and I'm also not trying to fix this?
1: Yeah, Um, I think one of the things that that I learned myself is when you're asking somebody, because it feels weird to ask somebody who's grieving, how are you doing? Because it's, you know, like it's it's a question where you're like, uh, and the receiver is kind of like, well, how how do you think I'm doing I don't know how to answer that. So always put the word today at the end of that question. How are you doing today? How's today been? So it's very much about trying to bring the language into the present moment, I think. And just understanding that, you know, you only have to answer that for this moment. How are you right now? Kind of a thing. Mm. And um, in terms of language, like I said, there is you know, not to be minimizing with the at least. So that's mm. the kind of the bright side, trying to get the person to cheer up. Um, I think as well that questions have to come from a place of curiosity mm. and not, you know, a kind of. a An expectation that there will be information dispensed yeah. at the end of it, you know, here's the big thing as well is to maybe loosen your grip on the need for language at all in these situations. So why does it have to be a conversation? Why does it have to be a phone call? What's, you know, get in your car Mm. and come down and go for a walk with me, you know, like just physical presence of being around. Uh, Also, hear my no. Really, really hear my no, please. Allow space for me to say no,
2: not today. So important, so important. When I was, I think the feeling when I when I realized how old your dad was, my overwhelming feeling was he was so young, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, But I, in my head, I was reminded of when my parents died, and people said, "Well, you know, it's not like they were that young." Mm. And that's the kind of flipping that people do sometimes to mm-hmm. uh, to yes. deal with it, you know, and, and you think, well, they were in their 60s. If you're in your 60s, you know, you still have a lot, you could have a long life ahead of you. And it's about those kinds of at least and those, you know, well, at least you had them for this long or at least they didn't suffer, or at least they didn't go on long or at least they had a wonderful life or, you know, and, and yeah. those are very, um, like you said, they're very damaging things because Extremely. they're damaging to the relationship you have with that person mm-hmm. very. very damaging very hard to come back from those kinds of statements I think
1: the quantifying of grief right I've been bereaved before you know I've, I've lost a couple of uh, friends and I've also lost a couple of pregnancies and I'm also I've gotten sober and I'm recovering from uh, an eating disorder like so I'm no stranger to grief mm. but losing my dad is a different kind of grief and what I recognized when I you know the kind of it's an education because I was like oh immediately I thought of friends of mine who lost their dad maybe 10 years ago Mm. and I didn't I didn't get it yeah I absolutely didn't get it so this quantifying of grief and then with miscarriage how far gone were you so that's like how old was he yeah how far gone Mm. were you and uh, you know, I learned the hard way not to answer those questions because I answered it one time about one of my pregnancies and the answer from a male was, ah, not so bad, so. And I was yeah.
2: like, excuse me? And I mean, miscarriage, we have so much to learn in how to talk about it with people, I think, to the point that it's like, I still can't believe we are where we're at. When I have friends and people in my life who have lost babies, I still hear people saying what you're saying to them. Oh, it was six weeks. Oh, well, then it's fine. It's fine. They didn't mm. they didn't feel all the excitement. Their body didn't go through all the change. Like it's it's bullshit of the mm. highest order that we can't seem to find yeah. a way to allow for that to be a real, true, honest, horrid loss. Yes, I, um, I
1: had three losses in mm. that. Like I had two pregnancy losses and then mm. I decided to not have children. And that was a loss that wasn't a physical, nothing physically happened in my body, but I closed Mm. it down. I closed down the possibility and the potential for that. And so it was a whole life trajectory path that I put up a gate and I was like, no. And there was grief around Mm. that, but completely disenfranchised. Yeah. You know,
2: did you have people were there people in your life that you were able to share that with and, and help you along the way? Or did you feel like it was a solo journey?
1: I had a lot of support and understanding and patience in my life, but I still did feel like nobody gets it. Nobody really gets what I'm really going through here because there was so much that was going on at the time. It was what led to sobriety for me. It was a complete and utter midlife crisis Mm -hmm. because it was an identity, you know, crisis. It was also it was a prerequisite to a kind of recovery I never thought that I would step into in terms of how I relate to my physical body, you know, the abuse that I have put my body through over the years, you know, and that came came up like I was confronted with that and I was confronted with um, the role alcohol was playing, just the way I was throwing myself around the place, like as if I was just this object that, you know, didn't, you know, all of that came up. So when I said no to motherhood, what I was choosing, I was saying yes to recovery and that was all going on beneath the surface Mm
0: -hmm. that's
1: not to say you can't have both motherhood and recovery i couldn't in my specific Mm -hmm. psychological spiritual mishmash and physiological mishmash it wasn't to be for me i chose something else you know i chose to express my maternal energy through my work
2: yeah and i i i hope i'm asking this question in a way that's respectful so please tell me if i'm not but this evolution, right? Like this getting to this this sobriety, all of these things, like you it's very raw and you learn mm-hmm. so much you learn so much about humanity mm. through it. Looking back now, do you feel a sense of freedom that you've chosen to to learn so much and to break through that wall of evolution? And it's not an easy journey to get there, to be open, to be that evolved, to kind of get to that much more evolved state. It's a hard place to be, but it's also rewarding in lots of ways.
1: It is. I'm I'm proud of my choice. I know that it was the right choice for me. Mm. It is such a relief to have made the choice because the agonizing about it was just endless. And in this case, I am, you know, I'm grateful for the, you know, I want to do the, my cousin Vinnie moment, the biological <laughs> clock. I'm grateful for the biological clock ticking in my ear because it kind of felt like I was running out of time to make the choice. And there's nothing like a time deadline mm-hmm. to actually get you to move and act and just make a decision. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you could sit an in indecision for the rest of your life. So I made a call. I made a choice. I've often said it's not a choice. That I would have made willingly. <laughs> yeah. So I have to remind myself every day, you chose this, Amanda. On the hard days, this is what you chose. Mm. And there's an awful lot of clumsiness in it, an awful lot of awkwardness in it, a lot of collateral damage in it. Like all the priorities change. You know, there's, there's so much collateral damage that comes with it because I choose me mm. over things and people that don't like it. You know, and and I have this, I have a spiritual um, guide myself and I meet her and, you know, right now that's what we're working on. We're working on the idea that, you know, the confidence to choose whatever I want to call it, choose my recovery, choose me, but choose what matters to me in my life. The courage and conviction to choose those things and let the dice fall where they may around mm. that choice. Let people be disappointed, let down, surprised by all of that thing. Because they're the things that keep us in our boxes. Like the the fear of hurting someone's feelings. And it goes back to like the, whatever, that trite statement. Like you can't make an omelette by cracking an egg.
2: But by fuck do I want that omelette? You know, <laughs> I really, really want it. I think, you know, from a from my point of view of listening to hear you speak about this that's so powerful it's from hearing it from a woman Mm -hmm. because this is against everything that we have been taught yeah you know make yourself small be accommodating say yes when you mean no um and to hear you kind of push against that and the rebellion against that and to choose yourself Mm. is a remarkably powerful thing in my opinion Mm. Um, because I feel like I battle with that conversation in my head every single day be likeable Don't be selfish. Ultimately, everyone around me needs to be happy first. Yeah. And then I'll somehow deal with myself at some point later, at some point in the day, maybe. And that day and that day often never comes. Mm -hmm. Even in language in emails, in all these things where we try to be as nice and putting everyone else. It's just I think it's I wish we could hear more voices like yours breaking through and expressing choosing yourself and the bravery it takes to do that because it's not I'm not in any way saying it's easy I can't even actually imagine how hard it is to get to the place where you are that amazing of a force and you
1: never get there actually it's just a practice and every day you learn oh okay well you know I'm still going to choose me but I might do it a little bit differently the next time you know because ouch you know and there is a fallout you know there is shit to deal with along the way but again you have to keep coming back and forgiving you know, being like, you know, well, that's. Every everything is an opportunity to learn, but nothing mm. is an excuse to stay in your misery, you know, to tolerate your own misery. And and that's the that's the raw deal that's been handed to women. It's like, you know, on one hand, teaching us to tolerate our own misery. And then on the other hand, telling us that our misery is our fault and we have to get out, you know, you know, like to do better, do all the mm. things and be perfect while we're doing them. It's ridiculous. Mm. But um. There's a beautiful poem. um, It's called Love After Love by Derek Mm -hmm. Walcott. And um, hopefully it's okay to just mention poems on on podcasts. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. I'll give it to you also for your show notes. But what Mm -hmm. it says is the time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door in your own mirror and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. And it talks about this idea of coming home to yourself. You know, this stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. And on the very end, it says, sit, feast on your life. Mm. And it's still like, yeah, I mean, that's an invitation. As that comes in your door, you're like, yeah, I mm. want to feast on my life and, and not be like scrimping around for breadcrumbs for fear of, pissing off the person who owns the loaf, you know? Mm. Anyway, I've gone off on a total tangent But,
2: <laughs> but this is no grief. I, mean, I could talk to you forever. Yeah. Um I, I'm really like I'm so appreciative of you sharing yeah. very important and intimate moments in your yeah. life with us. And this
1: is grief um, too, you know, like when you see somebody's number being called before he was ready, somebody who loved life so much, you say to yourself, Do you know what? One of the things the nurses in the clinic said at the time, you know, Brendan Grace has taught me something about dying, mm. you know, so it taught me something about living and dying. And it's like to be able to to deal with your own grief, because my dad had to mourn his own life, yeah, you know, and that was so painful to watch. It was probably the hardest thing to watch. And it didn't last long. You know, he mm. just went in there for a day and he had his grief, but he reconciled. He said, you know, I'm happy with how it went. And that's what matters at the end of the day. And that will motivate you, motivated me as a person to say, you know what? I'm going to choose different, Uh, even if it means getting it wrong. Sometimes I'm still on the same. I'm still going to choose this path I'm on, Mm
2: -hmm. you know? Well, I can't think of a better way to end it than to have somebody looking back and saying, I'm glad with the way it went. I think that's a pretty incredible thing and a good reminder, as you're saying to all of us, that there will be a moment for every single one of us where we will look back And we will have to have to make peace with that. So thank you so much for your time. Check out the show notes for everything that we discussed there in the conversation. And yeah, I appreciate it so much.
1: I appreciate you, Sasha. Thank you so much.